into it if you're okay, if you're comfortable. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Basically, looking at the articles, you've been almost putting out uh, an article per month on UAPs uh, and UFOs in Canada, which has been pretty impressive with FICE. And obviously, you have a, a history of, you know, with not just reporting UFOs, but all kinds of uh, reports. Uh, you worked for the Toronto Star, now working for VICE. How did the whole VICE um, situation come about with the, the UAPs? Like, how did you get a, a hold of this story? Uh, well, I guess it, it would have been in April of uh, 2020, I, I believe it was when the Pentagon confirmed the veracity of the three videos that had been included with that bombshell 2017 New York Times investigation. And, th and that just, uh, you know, sent off fireworks in my brain. Um, it, you know, so I, I started reading and researching, you know, everything I could get a hold of on the topic. And, you know, when I sort of felt like I was exhausting that, I started digging around for Canadian data. You know, you, you look around, there's a, a lot of uh, data on the subject from the United States. We, we don't see too, too much uh, new data or, and military data and aviation data coming out of Canada. So I started finding that stuff and then, you know, searching online, seeing that, you know, journalists and mainstream outlets weren't touching this stuff. And um, I pitched Vice. I had worked with Vice initially many, many years ago. At the beginning of my uh, journalism career, I was freelancing out of Southeast Asia, reporting mostly out of, uh, of uh, Myanmar, Burma, and uh, Cambodia. And I was I did it. my first story for Vice was uh, based out of the region there. So I, I had had some connections and I knew uh, some of the editors from my time as staff at the Toronto Star. So I reached out, um, you know, as a freelancer uh, with an idea about, you know, doing a story on uh, Transport Canada's huge database of aviation incidents, which includes everything from bird strikes to UFOs. And uh, they bit and it just started a process for me that I have been really, really enjoying. You know, I'm just sinking my teeth into this topic and, you know, casting nets for data and finding stuff. That's That's the most exciting and compelling thing here is that you know, data exists uh, that's from our government, from our military. It's there. You know, it's not as it's not like the United States where there's this long history of, you know, research and investigation. But there is a long history of, you know, reports. And for me, that's as a journalist, that's very compelling. Yeah, this actually, you know, uh, the subject of Canada and the United States, we've pretty much been as active as the United States. You know, everybody thinks that 1947, everything took place in New Mexico, but Canada had the same issues uh, as the States. And uh, no, it's a fascinating subject, especially because Canada is so quiet about it. I mean, now you're seeing a lot more of a, you know, inquisitive uh, crowd in the States. They want to know more about this whole UAP subject. But in Canada, we seem a lot more subdued when it comes down to our enthusiasm towards the subject. It just seems now that there's a bit of an awakening, but it's not, it's not as big as it is in the States. It's definitely a, a bigger movement. So with this, uh, when you started getting a hold of this story, what was your, like, did you feel like a pushback from the people you were asking questions? Was the government and, uh, you know, Transport Canada playing ball or were they sort of, uh, was it difficult? Yes and no. I, you know, I think the thing to remember is that, like, whether it be the Air Force or Transport Canada, you know, it's staffed by individual human beings who have, uh, 
varying levels of uh, openness and curiosity. And within all those institutions, you know, there are people who are curious and open to the subject. That being said, I, I found that once my, you know, initial rounds of access to information requests started coming in and I could back up my questions with, you know, official documentation, the nature of my conversations with the spokespersons from these agencies um, started to change. Uh, they went from basically uh, sort of more or less dismissing the types of questions I was asking as being kooky to actually engaging with me on the subject. So particularly, I would say the most responsive in terms of asking questions would be the uh, the Air Force. Um, oh, really? Yeah. You know, the their public affairs office, if you ask them point blank questions, they give you answers. But, you know, you kind of have to ask specific questions. Right. And they're willing to provide answers because they don't want people putting material out into the world that, you know, contains errors. Right. Right. Um, so I, I found them transport Canada, uh, you know, for, I guess, for those who are listening, who don't know transport Canada is the federal government's transportation department in Canada. They oversee, you know, Marine rail, air travel, et cetera. Um, obviously they, they play a role in all of this because they have an aviation incident database, as I previously mentioned, and, uh, which contains, uh, reports from commercial aviators. So transport Canada spokespersons, on the other hand, when asked direct questions tend to be, uh, a lot more dismissive. Uh, you know, those are probably the, you know, the air force and transport Canada are the two government, you know, agencies or whatever that I'm dealing with the most. And I, and I definitely say the, the Air Force is way more receptive and open. Right. I tried once to contact Transport Canada about uh, just a case that I was working on, and there was there was no play there. They're just like, no, we don't give out any of that information. I was like, okay, that was the first time and last time I think I tried calling them uh, regarding the case. So I thought they were very sort of, stand, not standoffish, but just very reserved, like, nope. No, we don't answer those questions. Oh, like, you know, they, they have to engage with me to a certain extent. So, you know, they have been providing responses to, again, to specific questions. But they, they've sent me some very dismissive things, like, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but one of them was like, objects that are not identified can't be investigated because of the nature of their name. They can, you know, it can't be known. It was, it was something like that. It was some kind of like double talk about you know, of course, we can't investigate these things because, you know, they don't have answers. It, it was it was odd. Um, so, you know, I get stuff like that from them. But, you know, the Air Force, on the other hand, says, yes, we acknowledge that sightings like this occur. Yes, we acknowledge we receive them. Yes, we acknowledge our pilots have made, had these types of observations. And no, we don't do anything with the reports when we get them. Which is just weird. <laughs> Like, why wouldn't they do anything with those reports that it's concerning that it's like you mentioned, they've had incidences for decades and yet nothing's really moved in that sense. We're just kind of like, oh, well, it just happens that weird stuff flies near well, airplanes. I mean, there's evidence that, you know, there's at least with uh, the NORAD affiliated units that are, you know, defending North American airspace that they're notified of UFO sightings by, you know, for example, uh, civilian air traffic controllers. But and there's a there seems to be some sort of threat assessment that happens. You know, this is what they say. They try to determine is this thing a threat to you know aviation and people? Is this a threat to national security? And if 
the answer is no and no, then the interest ends. So, you know, if somebody saw an unusual light or object that was shooting projectiles or beams at you, then maybe they would scramble jets, right? But, right. but just just the na- just seeing something unidentified uh, in terms of, you know, how the Canadian Air Force and NORAD look at it, just because it's identified doesn't mean it's a threat. Whereas, and that's where their interest ends, where I think in, you know, the U.S. military, by contrast, uh, for them unidentified, uh, you know, one can assume with the news we're seeing lately that, uh, they associate, you know, unidentified with something threatening. Right. Which I am still on the fence of whether or not I, these things are threatening or not. I mean, they come close to our aircrafts, but as far as I know, no major incidences of, of crashing, but you did mentioned uh, that there are near misses with uh, these things as well in uh, Canadian skies. What I found interesting was your uh, NAV Canada discovery, uh, how you mentioned about that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, In 1996, I believe, uh, Canada privatized all of its uh, civilian air traffic control infrastructure. So think things like air traffic controls, towers, radar installations, uh, things like that. It was a, uh, it earned the Canadian government uh, $1.5 billion and it transferred all that to a newly created private company. Just by contrast, Canada is actually pretty much the only country that has fully, fully privatized uh, air traffic control. You know, there is a degree of privatization in other countries. Some countries it's completely nationalized. Like in the US, it's the FAA. So if, you know, the FAA had UFO data from air traffic controllers, you could, you know, possibly get it through the Freedom of Information Act. Now in Canada, we can't do that because it's this weird situation where we have a private company running all that so i didn't know that i didn't know that that's awesome so so in in the research i was doing uh for my story for for vice uh i was sort of looking into uh nav canada's relationship uh you know with the military and transport canada when it comes to uh you know so-called ufo reports and basically because nav canada is operating all of the civilian air traffic control infrastructure if a pilot you know an air canada pilot westjet porter and there's documented cases of all these airlines seeing things that are odd if one of those pilots see something unusual their first point of contact is the air traffic control the air traffic controllers who are employed by nav canada uh, when they get a UFO report, they actually then go on and, and form a NORAD affiliated unit uh, with the Canadian Air Force at uh, CFB North Bay in uh, northeastern Ontario. And then they also, uh, Nav Canada also informs Transport Canada. So um, it, it, it was sort of fun, you know, to do this story that sort of showed Nav Canada's role as, you know, receiving this information and transmitting it. And, and the challenging thing is, you know, I, as a journalist and researcher, would love to do a, a freedom of information request, for example, to obtain cockpit audio if uh, Air Canada pilot saw something weird. You know, I want to hear that pilot's voice and hear what they're describing on the radio. Uh, but because Nav Canada is a private company, we can't obviously get that data unless Transport Canada or the Air Force or the military is asking for it. And there seems to be no indication that they're really ever asking for that kind of stuff. Um, and, that, and that's the challenge. You know, 
what we need uh, as you know journalists and citizen UFO researchers and activists is to try and get you know people in governments in the military interested because it, particularly in Canada, like only if we have the government and military asking now Canada for this data will we ever be able to obtain it you know through freedom of information channels. So right. um, you know that kind of advocacy you know isn't lost. Yeah, it's just a fact, though, that it has to go through all these procedures first before it gets into the hands of the public or reporters like yourself. Uh, that's that's the part that sucks. It's it, it's unfortunate that you can't just go there and say, hey, I'm doing a piece on this. Can I get any of the information? Nope. I've tried. Nice. <laughs> it was a solid no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing, uh, I guess, journalism 101 is you, you, you ask a lot of questions expecting no as a reply. And uh, sometimes you ask that same question five times, expecting no as a reply five times, but you got to be sure. And uh, Nav Canada, this company, they're, they're a little annoyed with me. Um, and they told me to stop asking them the same types of questions every time I write a story. You know, I'm just doing my due diligence by mentioning your company in the story I'm writing. I have to give you an opportunity to comment, right? So, right. Uh, but they said, Daniel, uh, you know, our response has not changed since day one. And the response is, we report things as we're supposed to, if, you know, uh, and they're, they do, you know, the documents show that they do notify the Air Force and Transport Canada. But they, they also said, you know, we have no obligation to release any data to you and, and we won't. So what happens to the pilots when they like say something like I've seen something is does Canada treat them the same way as the pilots in the States are treated? It's hard to say. Um, you know, the pilots that I've spoken to have mostly said that they usually don't advertise uh, the things they've seen. You know, they, they have a real fear of, you know, ridicule and, um, and the stigma, you know, the stigma is is pretty strong for when you report these kinds of things in that kind of like a professional aviation community. Um, you know, one former fighter pilot told me, you know, just he said, if a pilot is reporting something to the air traffic controllers, and that's creating a you know one of these Transport Canada reports, that he fe he felt as though that we should inherently believe they saw what they saw because the pressure against reporting is so strong, you know, in these kinds of in in that kind right. of community. Um, but yeah, the, I think there's pressure there. I hope that's long, but it's hard for me to say, you know, a handful of professional aviators have come forward to share their stories with me. And for the most part, they've all done so anonymously. And, um, some of them have told me stories saying, I just need to tell the story. Don't use it in anything, but you know, they just wanted to tell us, you know, have somebody hear it. Uh, and, right. and I respect that. I definitely respect that. Um, because why would I, you know, if I were in their position, why, why would I want to subject myself to ridicule and mockery? And then that's a really unfortunate consequence of having that kind of sighting and experience. Do you, do you have a particular story that well, one that you can tell that you were given permission to uh, that sticks out to you when it comes down to the pilots and an incident, like something that was substantial? Uh, you know, yes. I, in all these stories, the, 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 there's a common thread, you know, it's, it's an object and it's a light and it wasn't seen for very long and it was mystifying. Um, I think, you know, one, one story that particular, I found particularly interesting uh, 
was um, I, this was one I actually used for the uh, story. The the uh, the gentleman in question uh, uh, said, "Go ahead, use my name. I don't give a damn what anybody thinks." And I, I do think this was used in a story I did that was. Um, documenting basically seven decades worth of Canadian military UFO sightings, you know, starting back from the early 1950s and then following, you know, reports all the way up into the 2000s. And uh, the story opens with a experience from a former uh, lieutenant colonel. Who I, he might be the highest ranking, you know, Canadian soldier to go on the record about something like this. And he was uh, posted in Manitoba and he, on a training exercise at night. And he said he saw something just zip across the sky. I, I have it here. The quote was, uh, oh, wait, wait, no, that wasn't the right one. Um, I have so many papers on my desk all the time. <laughs> yeah. So he said he saw a very bright light and then the light quote, all of a sudden just zapped to the left. It moved at a speed that I could not comprehend. And this was in the 1980s, you know. So he was he saw something, him and two other guys lying in, in a ditch that went from one end of the sky to the other, you know, at the snap of a finger and then slowly disappeared. It's it's amazing how fast they are. I still don't know if the 2011 uh, Jerusalem UFO video is fake or not. I think it's legit because it was filmed from three different locations. But that speed at which it takes off, that's really what people, if they wonder, like when they hear about oh, how fast do they go, watch that video. When that thing flashes and then takes off, it's so fast that it, it's impossible to have anybody human, anyways, inside of that without being uh, squished into ketchup, technically. So, yeah, when you hear about this back in like the 80s or the 50s, it's just like we didn't have the technology then. We sure don't have it now. So, you know, the, the old old report seems like they have uh, a lot more value now than they did in the past, I think. Yeah, I, th I think we, we dismissed a lot of old reports in the past. But, you know, and like going back to that story I, I did on the uh, military incidents, you know, I, I think establishing that kind of historical continuity uh, was, you know, really persuasive for those who are sort of on the fence about whether or not this is, you know, a real topic of discussion at all. When you, you know, there was a one base, CFB North Bay here in Ontario, where I'm located, uh, you know, there were reports I found from the exact same base in 2007 and in 1952, both times oh, wow. with multiple witnesses. And the ones in 1952 was the weirder one. That was the one that was like, you know, moving in a more anomalous way. The one in 1952, you know, it sort of like upends the kind of uh, drone arguments that a lot of people use to dismiss a lot of this stuff today. Um, it's, it's, it's for me to, you know, see that continuity and then to see, wow, like the sighting at the same base in the early fifties was the weirder of the two, you know, th that was pretty revelatory for me. And yeah, I'm always amazed when somebody says it's a drone, like any videos, like it's probably a drone in the middle of the ocean. Like who's flying a drone that size in the middle of the ocean. Uh, I, I find it funny. I don't, I don't understand how somebody can just go straight to the drone theory because drones are loud. Well, right? I, and listen, and if they are drones and it means that that kind of advanced propulsion and energy technology has existed on earth for all these years and, you know, the potential implications of free energy and things like that, then it's absolutely criminal to hide that from, you know, the population. And if all of this investigatory work leads to some, 
you know, long-standing secret human projects, then so be it. That's still a good outcome if, if it means those types of revolutionary technologies could end our dependency on fossil fuels and things like that. Who knows, right? right? Like the, the implications are, are, are profound in, in different ways, depending on, you know, you know, assuming if, if you accept the premise that people are seeing like, you know, solid physical objects, which it seems like people do see. And, and what's your stance now? Like, did, were you a believer before? Were you, are you still a skeptic on this? Like, what's your stance now on uh, the UFO, UAP subject? Well, my stance is that credible people see unusual things. And I, you know, in terms of what is my, I, I don't have any conclusions and I'm sort of uh, wary of people who have very clear conclusions. Um, it, it, it's a mystery. It's, uh, and it, it's, it's, it's fun to, you know, poke away at it. You know, I feel like sometimes I'm just researching this kind of thing. You're just in a cave with a flashlight and you're just illuminating <laughs> one little tiny, tiny thing yeah. at it all. You know, uh, it, yeah. and that you're never getting the whole picture. And maybe maybe it's not something we will get a whole picture of. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think maybe 98% of the, you know, the what are pass off as so-called UFO sightings probably have uh, pretty normal explanations. Uh, but I, I do think there are some that are just mystifying. And that's, for me, compelling. You know, that's really what compels me to you know, try chipping away at the, this kind of mystery in my little way is that, yeah, there, there's, there's a mystery there. It's, it, you know, like how many mysteries do we have in our, <laughs> in our world? That one's, yeah, that one's a big one. Um, and the fact that we still don't know, I mean, um, was it the time life or lifetime uh, books? Do you remember those like back in the eighties and they came out, there was like one that was specific for UFOs, one for Bigfoot, uh, and I remember that was my introduction, uh, to it, but that was taboo back. Like if you own those books back in the days, people looked at you like, Oh, you believe in UFOs. And now it's a lot more accepted because of our generation. Like we grew up with, you know, ET and all types of different shows, Star Trek, like you name it. We got used to the idea that, you know, um, or at least the possibility that these things are for somewhere else. Who knows where? I don't know. Uh, I think recently, uh, there was an article that was uh, put out by uh, Tim McMillan, which was uh, about dolphins. Maybe dolphins are flying the UFOs. And I thought it was funny, but still, why not? Let's look at it, you know, uh, jokingly or um, at least from different angles to see, you know, because we don't know. I don't think it's dolphins, by the way. I don't think we have the technology. It would be cool if it was, though, eh? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be impressive? The whole time we were calling them greys. They were just dolphins, man. <laughs> they're grey with black eyes. That makes total sense. Uh, with uh, the United States, they're coming out with, um, you know, or at least trying to uh, come out with some sort of report and to the Senate and talk. Do you think that is going to happen in Canada? Do you think Canada is ever going to step up and say, hey, we have a problem with these objects too or do you think we're just going to stay silent until the states really have it cornered and then we speak up because canada always seems to be the last one to say anything um I'm, I'm not optimistic that canada is going to be on the vanguard of uh you know transparency or disclosure i think canada canada is weird in the sense that it, it, it seems to be relatively easier to pull information through our access to information process than I think it is with the, you know, the FOIA, the, the freedom of information laws in the U.S. Uh, 
it's so there's more transparency on that side but it's way more challenging to get any of our like officials or authorities to actually talk about it in a public way um i don't see that changing anytime soon i don't think there's really any political capital necessarily in speaking about the subject because you know either one you're gonna come across as being you know nuts and if you're taken seriously then what you're saying is let's put money into some into this thing when you know there's kids who don't have clean drinking water all across canada like right like, so you know there's, there's no I, I get it in the sense that there's not a lot of political capital so if they don't want to speak about it what i do think our government and military can do is be more open with the data you know there are to at least have some sort of process when you know reports are generated from pilots or something instead of just throwing them in a uh you know punting them around within governments and the military to only collect dust what if they like automatically went through a redaction process for personal information and then were you know posted to some sort of public facing database so people could have you know data to work with who actually want to dig in and get answers i don't think we can compel our governments to care about ufos but I think we can try to push them to just be more open and transparent about the data they do get and receive. You know what I mean? I think it. Yeah. We can, me and you can be the, the task force. Let every, let every citizen in this country be the Canadian UAP task force. Make the data you have publicly available. If it's not a defense issue, if it's not a security issue for you, Canada. And if you don't care, then like release the information. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Why all this, you know, hush, hush when... The information is not that uh, not that important. I, for the amount of um, objects that are seen in the sky, you were mentioning mostly it's lights, but there's also the tubes as well that people have been reporting. Um, I saw one myself in '94, uh, and it was tube shape. I say long john tic tac, you know, just that sort of shape as well. Um, mine was a lot more closer though than most people have seen them uh there was just like 80 feet above our heads so it was pretty darn close wow. uh but i've seen them and i know they're there right i've seen one with my own eyes so when i hear about other people especially in the saskatchewan or okanagan seeing these things i'm like aha at least canada has a tube ufo problem by the sounds of it so <laughs> yeah there's one instance uh i forget the year offhand where um, NORAD alerted uh, civilian air traffic controllers that they were tracking a large tubular object on radar that was traveling fast from Chicago to Thunder Bay. Sorry, not, it was going to, yeah, to Thunder Bay, Ontario. Oh, wow. Did he, and how fast was the single one? Wait, do I have it here? Uh, let's see here. My, my desk is, as I said, Hey, you're a reporter. <laughs> I would expect it to be a little bit messy. Yeah. When I do these kinds of things, I just drop stuff all over my desk to see if I can pluck up anything that uh, will be worthwhile. Yeah, here. Okay. So um, November 27th, 2002, uh, an observation on NORAD radar of a large tubular object between 37 and 47,000 feet in the area of Chicago, which was moving toward the Thunder Bay area. Oh, well. That uh, doesn't say anything about the speed, but it was it was enough for NORAD uh, to notify civilian air traffic controllers. And in the report that I found in the Transport Canada's archives, if my memory serves me correct, uh, there was a request in there uh, to 
forward any like sightings from pilots. And, th and that's what I filed requests for. And I've not been able uh, to get more data on that case. Not yet. I'll keep, <laughs> I'll keep trying. You're still hounding. Them. Yeah. Are again, you, you asked the same question five times, you know? <laughs> yeah. File well, the same request five times. See what you, happens. Do you try to change it up every time that you ask them the, the questions or is it kind of just always the same straightforward? Hey, uh, I just, I, I post questions with the info, all the data I have available to me, you know? And I think, that, that's something, especially if you're utilizing the public affairs offices, these communications offices in the government and military won't necessarily speak to, you know, everyday citizens. Uh, they, they do answer questions from media. It's just, you know, the nature of their job function. But, you know, there are public affairs offices, like not media relations officers that will hopefully answer questions if you pose them. Uh, but also with the access to information, uh, the whole access to information thing, like, one feedback I, I received and it's, you know, it makes sense. Like the more specific you are in your requests, the better your chances of getting a hit. Like I've asked for things in general terms and gotten nothing. And then I've, you know, through my research, found out more data about where said file is and then, you know, posed a new request and received it. And when I didn't get it the first time, it's not like the government's trying to cover anything up. It's just the individual person in the access to information office didn't have enough direction about, you know, where to go and look for this thing. You know, right. like when you, when you get negative results, it isn't, it could be, you know, in some cases there could be attempts to cover up, but you know, in my experience, it's usually it's because you're dealing with individual people who don't know, you know, they don't, they've been working there for five years. They don't know where that, you know, file was put away at that base, you know, 10 years ago, why would they know? And, you know, so the more you can hand them to help the system, the better, you know, if you send a request saying, give me all the UFO data, uh, you know, you might not get something, but if you say, Hey, you know, give me all of this specific type of report that's held by this specific officer at this specific base, then, oh, wow. you know, you, like once you get to that level, you, you, the results are coming in. But you got to do your heck of your research to find out where the hell that file is. Yeah. And, and listen, I, I, I've been sort of at it solid, especially with the Canadian data for, you know, approach, well, approaching a year. And like, I'm just starting to like make those connections. Oh, wow. So no. expect and, and more soon. <laughs> expect more soon. I was just going to ask you if you were working on anything juicy or uh, anything you want to talk about, or I guess some of the stuff you don't want to break too early. Um. I'm sort of, I'm, I'm working my way simultaneously, probably through about, you know, about three different stories at the moment. Um, and they're just going to provide, I guess, more detail and granularity on some cases, right? Uh, some new that I haven't written about before, some that I have written about before, um, you know, some information, a little more information on, we know that the reports get punted around and nobody takes a super, super close look, but um I, you know, I, I might have a little bit more to say about, you know, where those reports are going. Nice. You mentioned, uh, was it K-Doors? How, how do you pronounce that? Uh, K-Doors. The, the pilots I talk to all say K-Doors. Some people say K-Doors. I'm going with K-Doors. Yeah, it sounds, sounds better, <laughs> right? K-Doors. It, it kind of spelled like K-Doors, though. It's confusing. And, and what, what does K-Doors? That's different than NAV, right? So Nav Canada is, is is the private company that you know runs all the air traffic control. Kdors uh, is 
KDORS is an acronym for the Civil Aviation Daily Occurrence Report System. So KDORS is something that's run by the Canadian government through Transport Canada, and it's basically an aviation incident database. So if you're a pilot flying over Canada and you have a mechanical failure, you report it, it goes into the KDOR system. You hit a bird, it goes into the KDOR system. I found a case of like a guy getting drunk and like attacking passengers and punching a <laughs> punch, you know, like, like that goes in the system. Oh, dad. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. And if, if, a you know, if a pilot calls the tower and says they saw an unidentified flying object that goes into the KDOR system too. And that, that was sort of the foundation of my research. That's how, when I like started looking into the topic, it was, you know, through searching through that system. And th there are a few UFOs in there. Uh, but if you get a little more creative with your search terms, you start finding more stuff. And what was the reception with uh, your articles when they came out? Like a guy like me obviously would love it and I would read it right away. But what was, uh, do you find that there's there's a big market now for it? Like people are, are craving oh, yeah. for this stuff? Well, Listen, I, I've been working as a uh, journalist for about a decade now, and I was, you know, a staff writer at the Toronto Star and CTV News. I freelance for like two dozen publications, and I think the sort of the the reception that I, I received from like you know diving into this topic was probably bigger than anything else I'd done before. Oh, really? maybe. Maybe the exception being, I, I did a lot of work on uh, human rights abuses in uh, in Myanmar and Burma that, like, thank goodness got, like, some notice because, you know, there was, like, an ongoing genocide happening in that country that wasn't being reported on at the time I, I went out there. That, that So th that story, like, thankfully got notice. And, but, like, you know... It's, it's it's funny but the, the ufo stuff is just it's it's at another level you know yeah. the the reception the feedback you know the connections i've been able to forge and just you know like less than a year of writing about this topic you know i've met some phenomenal people who told me some incredible stories um i've met you know even had chances to speak to some of my inspirations you know like uh ralph blumenthal who you know who was one of the co-authors of that bombshell 2017 piece so it's, it's been an awesome ride and the support from both inside and outside the ufo community has been great you know there's been positive feedback from the ufo people who you know you know, for years were like paving the way for, you know, someone like me to be able to come and do something like this for, you know, a more mainstream outlet like Vice. And then for folks who aren't, you know, within that community, I, I know, at least with my journalist friends and things like that, um, you know, seeing like, for example, you know, a dozen reports from pilots from Air Canada, WestJet, et cetera, like all lined up one after the other. So it was, it was a little bit eye opening. Right. And, and um, you know, to, to show that, you know, there, there are patterns and that there is like a record of like, you know, these kinds of sightings through the ages for you and, and your audience, this is all, all a given, right? Like, but, you know, for a lot of like the folks who are reading my stories, they're, you know, the, the, this story comes up, they might not have read really much on the subject ever before. So, you know, I, it's important to me that, you know, I'm trying to convey that information uh, clearly. Uh, you know, I, I try to avoid speculation because I just, you know, it's important, I think, that, you know, we get more mainstream acceptance about this being, you know, a real topic worthy of, you know, academic, scientific, journalistic investigation. Um, but, you know, it's, and the reception's been good. You know, That's people.
Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I, I had Ralph actually on the, the podcast. Oh, uh, awesome. We talked about his, uh, his new book uh, on uh, John Mack. And if I'm lucky enough, I'll get uh, uh, Leslie Keen on in November. So I'm hoping uh, that all goes through. So far, we're still in talks about it. But I know they broke, to me, it's the same thing, right? They broke the story. Uh, I look up to them. And you kind of remind me of a young Ralph, uh, actually. Uh, so it's kind of, you. when you came on, I was like, oh, he kind of reminds me of Ralph, actually, a little bit. Uh, uh, I'll take that. It, it was a, I, I, I appeared on a panel with him, and we spoke of it after, and it was an honor. And, uh, you know, him and, and Leslie, they they opened the door. They, they made it okay in, you know, in the contemporary era for, mainstream journalists to tackle this topic they right. made it okay they opened the door and you know anyone who's writing about or you know doing any sort of media on this topic for you know a wider audience like owes them a lot of things it's i find that um written you know articles is great but still on on canadian television like they're always behind so even you know the senate had their hearing whatever and the states have made a big uh, fuss ab- about it and it took like two weeks for Canada to report on it. Like they always test the waters in the States first before they put it on TV. Whereas I find if it's written, it's out right away and it's accepted almost right away uh, easier than it is when it's on TV. I don't know what it is about that, that we have that uh, if it's written, we're okay with it. If it's on TV must be baloney, must be crazy. We're nuts. We're nuts as a species. We're just crazy. Uh, Daniel, where can uh, people find your work uh, and get in contact with you when they need to reach you? Yeah. um, So you can find me on Twitter at DS Otis, O-T-I-S. I have a personal website uh daniel otis.ca uh there's links there to all of my reporting on the subject and a lot of links to reporting that has nothing to do with ufos which was you know like the nine and a half years or so that brought me up until now <laughs> which great articles as well yeah yeah the whole list uh, is there yeah and if anyone wants to email me uh otis stories at gmail.com o-t-i-s-s-t-o-r-i-e-s at gmail.com um you have an interesting story to share. You found uh, a, a compelling document. Um, shoot me a line. I, I respond to messages. That's awesome. And I'll have the uh, all the links to that in the post, uh, podcast description as well. So for the listener, just go there and uh, click copy and paste and uh, go check out Daniel's work. I, I thank you so much for your time, sir. Um, this has been educative for me and the audience, I'm sure, because uh, I, I don't know much about, you know, the Canadian side of things. I know a lot more about the American side of things, as I think most people do, but the Canadian side of things, I'm still discovering. So, Well, listen, that's what compelled me to start doing reporting on this is I wanted to know more about what was going on in Canada and there wasn't too, too much. Like there's stuff out there, but there, there's, there wasn't enough for me. (laughs) Right. Right. And to to have that, you know, um, journalistic background that you have, you know, respected and then obviously working for vice, it really does put some weight behind it. And, you know, as just one of the guys reading your articles, I thank you for, for doing that because we need more people like yourselves, um, you know, covering this, more often there should be a lot more in the news than it is uh you know i I mean mainstream news you have to go off mainstream to find the stuff now but uh yeah no i thank you for doing that that that's really awesome you know appreciate it thank you i appreciate the kind words um i have a few more stories up my sleeve and you know i just 
there, there's data there and the government has it. And, you know, if I can like help be the, one of the vehicles by which that gets out there, uh, I'm happy to contribute. Awesome. Well, Hey, you're welcome on the show anytime. My pleasure. It was fun. Thank you so much. 